Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week is our final episode of our read-through of The Hunger Games, the first book of the trilogy. So we are going to be talking about some new insights that have come to us through our read-through. We're also going to have a character spotlight on a character that we're kind of seeing in a different light, as well as looking at some narrative threads. What connects this book to the books that come later, as well as Songbirds and Snakes. So this will be a spoiler-filled episode. If you have not read the rest of the trilogy, you you are going to be spoiled. Back to this episode after you sorted your life out and read those. And then we're going to finish out the episode bringing back our compelling questions segment. Oh, I miss those. I know, right? It's been a part of our episodes previously, and so we're bringing it back. Speaking of previously. Previously on The Hunger Games. I volunteer. Capital bad. Ooh, fashion. Game makers, pew, pew, pew. Love confession. Let the 74th Hunger Games begin. Ah, blood and death. Bruno! Peter! Kiss. Final showdown. Berries. And the capital hates you more. Yeah, that, pretty, that sums up the first book. Pretty good encapsulation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Recapsulation? Recapsulation. Uh, yeah, well yeah. done. <laughs> So just in case you needed those points, we, yeah, we provided them for A you. reminder of the main things that happen in this book. And exactly how they happened exactly. as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, really yeah. going into the detail. So why don't we go into our new insights section. What is something that has kind of come to you through this process of us reading through and recording about this book? Yeah, there, there's a lot. I think one of the the main things that came to me was the literal way that we as the audience see the capital. Mm. Because for the most part in the book, we see the capital backstage. Mm-hmm. We see the details of her experiences as a tribute, which is very different than the way the Hunger Games are portrayed to the majority of the population. Even in big events like the first parade bringing them in or their interviews or after they've won all those happen in very public ways ways that i think have a a public face but that's not the way that katniss experiences it i think that that's a really interesting way of us seeing the capital because it narratively sets the stage of the capital as a stage as something that is produced we don't see what it's like to just live in the capital. Mm-hmm. And that's because, particularly for someone from the districts, like Katniss, the capital is a farce. The capital is a facade. It's all... It's a super farce. It is a super farce. Super fart is more like it. <laughs> I was waiting for that. You know, all of the things that they say about the Hunger Games are there as excuses or as narrative propaganda mm-hmm. to justify what is essentially the torture, imprisonment, and execution of children on a public stage. I mean, the language tribute, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that always comes up in our missed opportunity section is how much more we want to know about the world of Pan Am and other experiences. And, And for me, what it's like to be a resident of the capital. 
for this story and highlighting the injustices of the capital and of Panem society, it is important to not have that be the way that we are seeing the capital. That we mm-hmm. never see the capital of just through the lived experience of a capital residence. That never happens. The only way that we encounter even being geographically within the capital is in this kind of backstage mentality. It's through the eyes of the person who's exploited by the capital. Absolutely, yeah. And it's always within their vision being able to see the elements of the stagecraft, being able to see the rigging. Like, I was in stage crew. I think about what it's like to build a set and to be able to make it so the audience is seeing something, but anyone behind it who has a different angle on it is going to see something completely different. Mm-hmm. And from Katniss's perspective, we're seeing something completely different. She's not one of the people who built the set, but she's one of the people who's forced to take part in this production and thus is so clearly able to pinpoint all of the ways that this is produced and is two-faced and is ultimately exploitative and inhumane. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think is really appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. Because the critiques, the rebellions, the radical dissents, the vast majority of the time are coming from communities that have experienced violence at the hands of those that they are critiquing, yeah. they are revolting against. Yeah, it's just, it's very appropriate that it's coming from that point of view. It's it's not from the point of view of the people who are benefiting from the oppression of, of the districts, because as we would guess, most of them are critiquing themselves yeah. and, and the role that they play in the destitution of thousands and thousands of people. Absolutely. In our context, millions and billions of people. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What's a, a insight that came to you during this read-through? Yeah, well, there was a few things that I know we had talked about along the way, especially in our, from another point of view, or in some of our wonderments, that as we continued reading, I think there was more evidence to back up those things that we were thinking. So, for example, with Caesar Flickerman, mm-hmm. and thinking about him, is he actually trying to help equalize the playing field a tiny bit through his interviews, through trying to pull out anything that could be attention-catching that the audience would remember for these kids that are having a hard time in their interviews, you know? And then seeing at the end, after Katniss is out of the games, she finds out from Hamish that the capital is furious with her. She had a thought that was like, oh, he'll want to help us. Mm -hmm. And so kind of seeing that continued on, this idea that, is Caesar doing everything he should be doing? Absolutely not. Should he be willing to die to take down this terrible regime? Yes. But in this very, very small way, maybe she was right about him. Maybe we were right about him that he would want to try to not have more harm come to Katniss and Peta. Um, so that was just interesting because I, I never really thought about that much before. Yeah, it, it makes me think of the other people who have more one-on-one relationships with the tributes, mm-hmm. in particular the experts in the training center who are at the different stations there. The one thing I, I remember from the book is Katniss talking about how the people from the less popular stations mm-hmm. seem to be happy to be able to teach something. <laughs> totally, yeah. 
And it does make me wonder, you know, is there an element of them, they're happy to be involved or they're happy to be able to teach these children something that might help them survive Mm -hmm. and that it's not in any way actually critical of the games as a whole but it's not dismantling anything exactly but it could still have some good intentions involved of look i have a skill that i think is important and i hope this will help you in some way which I think, again, is very accurate for people in, like, positions like us, mm-hmm. where we care about the injustices that are happening, and we would want to do things to try to dismantle that, to criticize it, and to do these things. Obviously, they are not doing so in a public, obvious way, but still, I think the majority of people who have a more privileged existence in the country they're in or in whatever aspects of their life privilege them. You can't divorce yourself from that. You can't divorce yourself from that and trying to see the capital people and relate to them isn't to to just humanize them and to be like, oh, they're not that bad. It's not that. No, obviously they should be doing so much more and to some degree, because they're not, they are semi-okay with not sacrificing their life to try to take this down. Yeah. But those are the people that we should be relating to in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's something that has always stood out to me since I took a biblical studies class on the Synoptic Gospels in my university. And my professor was looking at one of the parables of Lazarus and the rich man. And if you're not familiar with this parable, there was this rich man and Lazarus had leprosy and he would have taken any type of food, anything, because he didn't have any resources. But the rich man just didn't care. He had excess of everything. And then he ends up dying, going to hell and asking for Lazarus to help him to give him water, to give him something as he's like burning up in this afterlife situation. And I remember my professor being like, what we know about the structure of this parable is that Lazarus is named, the rich man is not named. Mm. So we can only be the rich man Mm. in this scenario. So we should not be reading this relating to Lazarus. We can only read this relating to the person who is not caring the person who is privileged the person who part of their life is exploiting others and so i think for me in this read through trying to sometimes sit with what the people in the capital are doing and relating to that is part of that exercise of like how am i like the capital to put the critique back on my own life you know absolutely yeah i mean i am a college professor i am in many ways, only serving a select group of people, even within our societies, Americans, and then once you look globally, mm-hmm. and even more select. And of course, in that process, I want to teach them critical thinking. I want to teach them historical thinking skills. I want to teach them a more diverse way of looking at the world and at history and all these other kinds of things. But ultimately, it could be argued that I am upholding hierarchies rather than challenging them. And yeah, that's, that's someone in the capital. I think that I'm upholding less explicitly exploitative uh, hierarchies mm-hmm. in education. 
Maybe you know? you're a Porsche. You're not yeah. the Cinna, but you're you're working alongside the voices of yeah. people who are, are doing these I'm doing things. my best to, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But you're still in the Capitol. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Another thing I was kind of thinking about was when PETA and Katniss are arguing about not wanting to kill the other person, mm. and he takes his bandage off and is bleeding out, and remembering the conversation where I was like asking the question, is PETA depressed? Is suicide something that he thinks about? Because he literally was trying to kill himself in that scenario. And it's not just that, like, you could be like, oh, well, he was trying to let Katniss survive. But he literally said, Katniss, it's what I want. So that was another thing that I'll definitely be keeping in mind as we read forward. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of written here on the page. This is very plausibly a part of his his mental health. Absolutely. I I also had an insight about that scene Mm. that I want to track for our future episodes because I kind of saw a line that Katniss, I think, thought. I don't think she said it out loud. But it was essentially that if Peeta died here, she would never leave that location because she'd always be thinking about what she should have done. Mm-hmm. How it kind of made me think about, in a different way, not, not looking at PETA's depression and, and possible suicidal ideation, but what both of them were trying to avoid. And for PETA, it felt like he was trying to avoid the loss of Katniss. That PETA was wanting to not live in a world where he would lose the person who he cares about, whereas Katniss didn't want to live in a world where she failed to save a person she cared about. I mean, maybe. That's I mean, the that's... assumptions that we make from the little bit of dialogue we have yeah. with PETA. But I'm wondering if it is that. I'm wondering if part of it is not just you have family, you have these different things that give you the will to live and to continue on. I don't have those things. And if you die here, that'll just be another reason that I don't want to live. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I could see, kind of see both ways. Like that was my initial reading in it. Mm-hmm. But I think that your reading is also really compelling. And particularly I'm someone who's struggled with mental health myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's absolutely something I'll be continuing to look for in our in our further reads. But I'm also going to be, yeah, looking for the extent to which Katniss makes her decisions based off of who she's afraid to lose versus how much she's afraid to be someone who failed to save someone. Because I think there's a subtle difference there that maybe me, as someone who's read a lot of comic books and (laughs) has seen a lot of people with savior complexes and can be codependent myself, like, it's just something that kind of resonated with me for the first time this read through. Mm, That's interesting. I was also thinking about how in those moments, PETA has given up the hope that there's anything that they could do without the parameters of these games. Mm. Whereas Katniss hasn't yet. She is trying to figure out a way. I just think that's that's really interesting considering that right before the games, that conversation that they had on the rooftop, Peter was saying, my best hope is to not disgrace myself and to show them that they don't own me. I'm not just a piece in their games. And he was asking if that made sense. And she was kind of like sort of and he was like you know within the framework of the games there's still you there's still me there's things that we can do yeah and i think she's the one who actually really gets to fulfill that Mm. not him and she actually helps him 
fulfill that his kind of dying wish of being able to show the capital this because she thinks of a way that they can operate still within the framework of the games and topples that structure to some degree he even says in that moment hold up the berries i want them to see like he gets it that that this is what they're doing in that moment but she's the she's the one that comes up with that and i think that that connects to our conversations about using the weapons of your enemy against them absolutely katniss is better at that than pita is katniss is very good she's so savvy at understanding what the capital needs from the Hunger Games and is therefore so able to use that against them and use that as a weapon and a tool for her own aims. I think Peta, though he can be very strategic, he can be very very savvy and very charming in many he ways. He has the theory. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily have the practice. Exactly. And it yeah. doesn't come as, as quickly and as naturally to him, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote down this quote from the end of the book that said, The Hunger Games are their weapon and you are not supposed to be able to defeat it. Which I was just like, oh, this is exactly the using the oppressor's weapons against them. Totally. It's like what you created to silence me and my people, I'm going to use to like make myself so loud that nobody in the entire nation of Penem can ignore this. Yeah. Which they were not very happy about. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's such a powerful, iconic moment. Totally. I mean, that's probably a good transition to our narrative thread section. Yeah, let's do it. What what connections are you seeing with other books, either later in the series or earlier? Yeah, so something I was thinking about as I was reading through was just realizing how iconic these games were, how they were so different from all of the games before them, at least, you know, that we know of, mm-hmm. and why they really helped incite revolts in the districts. There were just several things that transgressed the MO of the games. And I think them, like, building on each other really created a good recipe for rebellion. Starting at the beginning, having a volunteer from District 12. I'm wondering if that caught the attention of other people in the districts. Because it had been so long since there had been a volunteer from the district. And it's showing people and and even kids who potentially could be reaped in the future that there's a different way to do things and maybe that could have been inspiring for kids because previously when I've thought about the revolts and everything I've thought about adults Mm. but why couldn't kids be some of the people who were spurring on revolts I mean when you, you think about it, young people have often been at the forefront of movements that affect their lives. Absolutely. Protesting Vietnam War in the United States. Uh, the Arab Spring. Exactly. People protesting climate change. Yeah. And so often it is young people and the young people are the ones who are most negatively impacted mm-hmm. by these games. So yeah, I was kind of thinking of that being like the spark of something different about these games. And then we see the boy from District 3 use the landmines within the games. Mm. And that is using the weapons of the oppressor. People in the districts must have just loved seeing that. And there was inter-district alliances outside of the career pack. District 11 sending Katniss the bread. Thrush sparing Katniss's life. 
that's not only bold solidarity and, and respect and reminding the districts that they're stronger together mm-hmm. against the capital, but I think it's also putting kindness and affection over survival because Katniss goes crashing through those trees to rue even though that was not the smart thing to do she spends time there singing rather than planning her next move Mm -hmm. that's just reminding people they are more than their base instincts they are more they're more important things than simply surviving and obviously the burial of rue showing everyone what thousands of dead tributes previously have never gotten and even for people in the capital watching if they showed that part it would have been the only time they saw a burial of the tributes yeah i could imagine that moving people and that leading to later riots that happen when the victors are going to be killed in the quarter quell mm-hmm. of of just already having a little bit more humanization than they previously had seen. Yeah. Also having that rule change, as we were talking about before, wouldn't people just be so angry in the districts if their kids didn't have a partner left, you know? Yeah. I I think that that definitely would be true of the people who had loved ones in the 74th games. But also imagine if you had a sibling that died in a previous games that the boy from your district won Mm -hmm. and you'd be like so now they're letting more than one yeah but when my sibling was in the games that wasn't the case and then i could imagine the the mutts just being the last straw yeah then after all of that anger is building and building and these different things that you've been taking note of have been happening you have the berries moment mm-hmm. and there are two victors which means that you can force the capital's hand yeah and if katniss and Peta, these two kids from district 12 can do it why can't you do it too yeah and also wondering if if the power of the capital shippers of Peta and katniss helped lay the foundation for the revolution in a way too because if the mentors and people like Senna and Plutarch in the capital saw the effect that Peta and Katniss had on the capital you know maybe they believed that a revolt might be able to be done uh once the quarter call was announced yeah I mean there must have been a drastic change for those who were considering rebellion for whatever plans they were making to decide that the rebellion would begin with the rescue of tributes in the quarter quell because they don't decide to bomb a strategic military outpost as the first act of their rebellion i mean the the districts start rebelling first true but the 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 people in the capital yeah the people mm-hmm. in the capital and district 13 which becomes mm-hmm. the the primary force behind it there's clearly a huge amount of hope placed in what the tributes and katniss and in particular can bring to the rebellion to choose that as essentially the start of open war mm-hmm. and yeah that that comes out of i think exactly what you're saying these games that challenge the capital in so many ways and also illuminate 
so much of the capital in so many ways. Not only the flagrant aspect, but also the arbitrariness of which they make their decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how infuriating that must be to anyone in the districts to see how quickly they can change these rules and for no real reason. It's like assaulting of the wound. It is. They already are, are creating this oppressive, overpowering regime, but now they're just playing with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand why that would move many people to rebel who perhaps were more content beforehand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so just looking at all of those things together, I think makes it make so much sense what happens in Catching Fire Mm -hmm. because I love Katniss I think things that she does they are unique but also seeing that it wasn't just her it was the actions of Thresh it was the actions of District 11 people it was the actions of the game makers themselves it was the actions of people in the capital who loved Katniss and Mita you know it was all of these things, plus her cleverness and her ability to be defiant and use those berries. It was all of these different things coming together that ignited this rebellion. Yeah. And Peta's framing of his entire identity as a tribute being devotion to another tribute. Sure, it was someone from his own district, but even that is yeah. a huge different. difference. It's than... not about survival again. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really good points. So what's something you were thinking about? I, I was pulling a thread that connected to the Battle of Songbirds and Snakes. In particular, it was really interesting seeing how the capital looked at the districts mm. compared to how Snow and the people in his vicinity looked at the districts in the Battle of Songbirds and Snakes, which is, of course, just 10 years after the war with very vivid memories of hunger and the costs that came with that war for the capital, and even for those who are extremely wealthy in the capital. But 64 years later, we see a very different capital. We don't see a capital that has a recent memory of want, of being in such a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And They're so, the opposite. Exactly. They've been the opposite for so long that at that point, the districts are no longer seen as an enemy. As I think back to Battle of Songbirds and Snakes, the entire relationship between the districts and the capital being one that is clearly a result of war. But we don't see that at all in the capital of the 74th Hunger Games. We don't see them thinking of the districts as enemies. We see them as thinking of the districts as quaint, (laughs) backwater parts of, of society that perhaps are uneducated, that are simple, that are... Ooh, you must have so much fun seeing our little gadgets. Exactly. (laughs) But are no longer discussed as anything other than, yeah, this quaint, sacrificial entertainment. That is just such a... I mean, it's a tradition. Yeah. It's a tradition that you don't think about where it came from and whether it came from true things, whether it came from problematic things, whether... It should still be continued on. It's just, ah, let's celebrate it like the 4th of July or Thanksgiving or something like that. Exactly. I think one thing that reading the Bell of Songbirds and Snakes added to my perspective was more understanding of historical memory, frankly, Mm. which, you know, as a historian (laughs) is something that I find compelling and, and really fascinating is how not only events occurred, but how, how events are remembered 
which is its own historical focus. The Holocaust is probably the best researched topic in this kind of way, mm. but how the Holocaust was experienced, of course, lots of historical study on. But how the Holocaust was remembered 10 years out, 20 years out, 50 mm -hmm. years out, those are also very important and very powerful historical topics. What groups that were persecuted by the Nazis are not remembered or mm -hmm. thought about? How the Holocaust is remembered in Poland versus how it's remembered in Germany. Mm -hmm. And how it was remembered in East Germany versus West Germany. And, you know, like all sorts of these kinds of things. I, I think, and I, I've read some in that, that area. I'm in no way an expert, but I do find it very, very compelling. And so thinking about the Hunger Games, that same prism, how people at the 74th Hunger Games think about the advent of the Hunger Games. They do not remember it as it happened. It has new social meaning and cultural meaning for the people in the capital and in the districts because of this very long history and because of the purposeful decisions that especially people in the capital have made about yeah it shows how effective the decisions that they made were uh, constructing this false narrative exactly it, it raises so many more fascinating questions of what's happening in all of panem society to think about how much of a divergence there is, which of course relates to so much of our own history and the way that our history is understood. So yeah, I, I, that for me was one of the most powerful narrative threads that I really started pulling on as I was reading through, but I didn't want to on our podcast spoil about some snakes, but it kind of <laughs> yeah. kept coming up as like, oh, this is really, really interesting, really fascinating how, how different the relationship between the capital and the districts are, but also how different the narrative of that relationship is and, and, its, and its history. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great and it's fascinating and I wish there was a post-topple of the Capitol historical analysis. <laughs> I would like to read that. Yes, totally. <laughs> Another thing that I was thinking about connecting to songbirds and snakes is kind of wondering if seeing how Katniss reacted to Rue's death led Snow to conclude that he could easily use people against her mm. to control her because... Songbirds and Snakes ends with Coriolanus Snow thinking, oh, I never want to fall in love. I don't want to love people anymore like Lucy Gray because then they can manipulate me. Obviously, she wasn't manipulating him or if she was in certain ways, like he didn't actually love her. So he, he has a, a false reality of himself. Yeah. He, he's delusional in certain ways. But that idea of... I'm going to make these certain choices in my life so that I am not susceptible. I am not in vulnerable. a vulnerable yeah, yeah. state. Then having had that realization, I wonder if he is continued to try to use these things to manipulate people. He sees it as a weakness in others. Exactly. Yeah. And a new area to exploit because that, that's what he does to Finnick, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it seems like he did to Hamish and Johanna Mason and obviously Katniss. So yeah, I was just kind of thinking about that and then also thinking into the future. If Coyne saw that same thing and made those same conclusions mm. because her making the decision to i mean we're assuming making the decision to kill prim and 
her not wanting Katniss to be really okay enough to go up against her. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. In any way, I think in some ways was Coyne actually overestimating Katniss. I thought that was a really interesting line with when Foxface died, Katniss was thinking like, Mm -hmm. I've spent so much time making sure I don't underestimate my opponents. I've forgotten that it's dangerous to overestimate them as well because Katniss never wanted to rule Penna. She she would run from that. You know, like after the revolution happened, Snow was gone, they can topple this regime. She just would have wanted her loved ones to be safe and her to be out of the spotlight. You know, that's what Katniss would have wanted. But I think in some ways, Coin overestimates her. Mm -hmm. And Snow, I think, in some ways underestimates her Mm. because you would think for somebody who reacted with this bold, defiant act of bringing out those berries that he would be more cautious of threatening her (laughs) because she did this to protect someone. So if you threaten the people that she cares about, she might do this again. There was another quote, which was Katniss thinking about the Mockingjays. It said, they can be dangerous, though, once you get too near their nests, but you can't blame them for that. Mm. And I think that's so Katniss, right? She can be lethal. She can be very dangerous, but it's only when you're threatening the people that she loves. Yeah. She doesn't lean into danger. She doesn't lead into violence. She has a lot of compassion, actually. She's just trying to get by and make sure the people that she cares about are not starving to death, are not being killed by the capital, aren't being tortured by the capital. And Snow keeps coming for the nest, right? And that's that's his downfall. Yeah. And I wonder how much that comes from him being like, it's now been 64 years where he's been able to competently exploit people, control people. He has not had to feel vulnerable. He has not Mm -hmm. had to feel like he's at risk. So he becomes overconfident himself. And yeah, it does underestimate her. Now he's trying to defend his own nest, but he wouldn't see it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really, his nest is the Plinth's mansion. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a granddaughter. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he'd really care about anyone that much. But I think that he'd believe he'd care about legacy. Oh, that's true. That's true. He has to have some surviving heir. Exactly. Because then snow can't land on top if there is no snow. Exactly. Also climate change, though. Yes. Climate change is coming for you, snow. <laughs> sure, snow lands on top when it lands, but that's how <laughs> landing works. And then the sun comes out and it melts and it's gone, snow. Yeah. What does fire do to your snow, snow? Snow. (laughs) There are actually a couple other quotes that I wrote down that I thought were foreshadowing. One was after the tracker jacker stings. Mm -hmm. And she's fallen into that ditch and it says, Each time I wake, I think, at last, this is over. But it isn't. It's only the beginning of a new chapter of torture. Oh, wow. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I I did not pick up on that, but yeah. I had to write that quote down because I was just like, yeah, just that that is Hamish's experience. That is any of these people's experiences that have to then go back to the games and be interviewed and dress up and be filmed and mentor people who are going to get violently killed Mm -hmm. and... All of them probably leaving the 
their own games felt. Ah, it's over. Only to realize that it's not. Yeah. Yeah, another one was when she was thinking about PETA. Close to the beginning, she thought... Oh, not, not when she goes, PETA! <gasps> <laughs> no, not that one. That's the quote I'm always thinking about. Uh, I know you are. <laughs> That's what you think about when you think of PETA. Yes. It's hard for you not... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> no, but she thought the more likable he is, the more deadly he is, which I think very much foreshadows Mockingjay mm. because she actually cared about him. What the Capitol did to PETA, the, the torture, the brainwashing with the tracker tracker venom, it could have such a profound psychological impact on her Yeah. because at that point, he was completely likable. He was completely trustworthy. He was all of these things. And it actually made him more dangerous to her. Yeah. If she was just around someone, almost anyone else who was that dangerous to her, particularly once they were at the Capitol and kind of off the leash, she would just kill them. She'd probably feel bad about it. But like she, as soon as that person yeah. made a move to kill someone in her troop, she wouldn't just try to disarm them. Mm-hmm. And because it's PETA, she does. Or that she would just leave him yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, okay, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm not going to take you with us. So if the peacekeepers find you, kill you, torture you, whatever, that's yeah. what's going to happen. But he was too likable. Stop being so likable, PETA. For some of us, it just comes naturally. <laughs> um. Anyways, <laughs> the last thing I was thinking about... Rude. <laughs> ...was... When Octavia slips Katniss an extra roll mm-hmm. after she comes out of the games and is hungry, but they don't want her to eat too much because she could vomit it up or oh, things like yeah. that. Right? Totally foreshadowing in District 13 when she had tried to take an extra roll and then them um, locking her up, probably torturing her. Oh, yeah. That's such a good connection. I can't believe I didn't catch that. That's what I'm here for, Chris. Yeah. Well, I'm glad someone competent on the podcast. <laughs> someone who's paying attention. Someone's just paying attention to screaming PETA's name. <laughs> exactly. Someone who's who's reading these for more than just the romance. <laughs> someone who the mushy stuff doesn't permeate their hard shell around their heart. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we go into our character spotlight section? Who is a character that through this read-through and recording the podcast, you've kind of had more revelations about? Well, one I've definitely been paying attention to is Effie. In kind of contrasting ways. Because the, the way that I, I kind of put her in my notes is as a dangerous ally. Hmm. Because she is someone who I think becomes more of an ally. Beyond just a helper... In Caring some ways. for her own sake. Yeah. But I think she becomes more allied with Katniss and Peeta's well-being and, and, mm. and caring for them. But I don't think that she ever stops being capital mm-hmm. in a way that Cinna, you could argue, isn't. Or I she think... never wants to not be capital. Exactly. In a way Cinna might. And so, yeah, I, I see her as an ally but a dangerous one because... Katniss will still have to be guarded around her, still cannot be honest with her in a way that she really only can with Hamish and Senna and Peeta. Mm-hmm. 
I think that is a really interesting journey because part of it is my own reading of Effie and, and wanting to kind of see more of her and think more about what she's experiencing. Uh, there's one one moment when she's coaching Katniss. She's saying, you know, just act like they're your friends. And Katniss is like, they're not my friends. They're trying mm-hmm. to kill me. And Effie gets upset. The first few times I read through, I thought it was because Effie was just frustrated with her because she wasn't doing what she wanted. But this read through, I started thinking like, oh, is Effie hurt by that? Mm-hmm. Does she want to consider herself Katniss's friend? And is hurt by the fact that Katniss doesn't. Yeah, it's just that just kind of exemplary of how Effie's in this very interesting position as a member of the team, an ally, someone who helps them in many important ways, but someone who ultimately might still be an enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's just something that, that was really on my mind in this book and will probably be something that I, I continue to read through in book two and then the very end of book three when Effie shows up again, uh, kind of what, what that relationship is like mm-hmm. and how it how it grows. Is she an enemy? Ally and enemy? I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we shouldn't like an enemy. <laughs> That's true, I guess. It just sounds too, <laughs> too much like an enema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. What about you? Did you have a, a character spotlight? Yeah, so I've always found Hamish interesting, but reading through this time, almost every few chapters, you know, I was I was thinking about his perspectives and his experiences. Some of them we've covered as we've gone along, but one that I was thinking of that I never mentioned either on on Patreon or with the episodes was just how much sleep did he even get mm. during the weeks that Katniss and Peta were in the arena? Because with no other mentors, they couldn't sleep in shifts. You know, yeah. he had no other person there. And so maybe Effie and Senna and Portia helped out. Maybe if they could. But even if they did, seconds can make the difference between life and death in the arena. Yeah. So waking up Hamish so that he could assess the situation and then decide what to do and then off- authorize a gift to be sent, like it's just or, so much more dangerous. Or go to lobby a sponsor to get that gift in a exactly. particularly important moment mm-hmm. when like, it's more affecting to them. Yeah. Yeah. So how much pressure did he feel to not even rest while this is must be so exhausting and re-traumatizing and depressing and all of these things just so he could he could try to help them get out of the games yeah was something that i just never thought about before and there were, there was a lot of things like that as i was reading along just thinking about his experience and Really seeing, you know, I've known that he's alone, but just seeing how alone in so many ways he's been and how not having even one other mentor with him could affect him and put pressure on him and make his experience even more miserable, make him feel even more guilty Mm. or like, I can't do this on my own, so I'm going to check out. Mm. yeah 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 so I, i've just been thinking about him a lot and i don't think that's gonna stop <laughs> <laughs> but anyways should we go into our compelling questions before we close out the episode that sounds good 
Okay, well, what do you have for me? Speaking of PETA. <laughs> I should start taking bets <laughs> on if your points will include something specifically about PETA or not. So PETA's great speech about not wanting to be a piece in their games and, mm-hmm. and not wanting to lose himself is, is of course, a- iconic. But this read-through, one thing that stuck out to me was how he says he doesn't want them to turn him into a monster that he's not. Mm-hmm. And that word monster really was was interesting to me. And so do you see anyone who you think the narrative might be putting forward as an example of the kind of monster that Peta may have been not wanting to become? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think probably someone like Cato and the careers who go out hunting mm. rather than just trying to survive. So if someone comes and attacks you, you defend yourself is very different than like going on the offensive. Someone like Marvel as well, obviously within that setting, but also literally trapping Rue to use as bait. I think that's another way that, yeah, my thought is that PETA is thinking about losing humane things about him for the sake of survival. I wonder also if it could be something like, I'm not going to put on a violent show Mm. to get sponsors the show he put on was romantic and so maybe like using different sorts of actions to get people to pay attention to him to get people to want to support him rather than going towards violence rather than using any sort of strategy that upholds the structure of the games because his strategy mm. was the romance, which is not really upholding the structure of the games, which is about survival, which is about having a champion, which is about being stronger and overpowering yeah. your opponents. He was subverting how the games and sponsorships work to some degree through mm. that crush confession and through what he did in the games in a large part. Yeah, I I was thinking of similar things. I think there are a lot of characters who could be slotted there. I think that Kato's a great example, but Kato does ally with Clove when he gets the chance to do so. Mm -hmm. And And he doesn't go after them. mm -hmm. He cradles her as she's dying instead of using the opportunity to go kill Thrash or Katniss. Exactly. So though Kato is monstrous in some ways, Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if he is entirely that kind of archetype. But, you know, you're talking about foreshadowing and some quotes there, looking at how Peta in book three is turned into a monster in some ways, is turned into someone he's not in many ways. Mm -hmm. And what that means for him, it's, it's just even more powerful thinking about his characterization and his journey in these books. It starts with this conversation that is powerful and poignant in so many ways but this read through as i as i started thinking about like what exactly they meant with that word monster that i'm also gonna be looking to see if that comes up ever again in the books Mm. but i just think that it's it's a uh an interesting idea to think about because i don't know it just made me feel like i don't want them to turn me into a monster that i'm not it makes me feel like they need to have some example of what that would look like. And if PETA is ultimately the best example of that in book three, 
what that means narratively and as a story uh, is just so powerful and depressing and, and <laughs> tragic tragic and fascinating yeah yeah it's kind of making me think if the way that PETA prevents himself from becoming monstrous is through love through mm. care through kindness because that's what he's doing so much of the time in these games yeah. and that's what helps bring him back from this hijacked state is after he does something like kill one of the members of their unit he's like leave me here yeah. kill me do it i don't want to do this anymore so i think so often he is guided by care for other people and an understanding of how his actions impact other people i mean he goes to therapy yeah. after to to help him handle this and yeah that that is one of the ultimately subversive things you can do is be guided by love in an environment of survival yeah in the hunger games in, in the 74th games essentially allying with the careers his intention is to do so to, to lie to them to seem like he's out for survival to not care that his ultimate story might be one that's seen as dishonest or immoral or mm -hmm. questionable but he's his intention in all of that is out of care for katniss yeah. is to say these are her biggest threat and i'm going to be there when that threat takes place to help her in any way i can yeah no matter what well what's your compelling question for me so as we were doing this read through, I think peripherally, I've been kind of questioning the careers. So my question is, how much do you think we should differentiate between District 1, 2, and 4? And do you think Katniss's perspective on them is pretty accurate? Or do you think there should be more nuance there? I mean, I'm always a fan of more nuance. <laughs> But I will say that perhaps I don't live up to that myself because in my readings thus far, I haven't seen much to differentiate one, two, and four. I mean, when I think of four, I think of Finnick, mm -hmm. but I, I could not pinpoint exactly what happens with any careers from four in the 74th games. Yeah, one died in the bloodbath and the other was with the tracker dracker nest and, and along with Glimmer and we didn't know her name. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's Finnick and Mags. They're the only ones we know, really. Mm -hmm. Well, and Annie. Yeah. So I don't know to the extent to which you would differentiate between them as a career pact. I think that it makes sense to differentiate the careers from others. But I think that the nuance for me should come in even more individually. What it's like for them, how that might be impacted by their you know, maybe their gender, maybe their age. Though I imagine that all of them are probably older because of the career volunteering process but i mean we don't know we don't that they know. all volunteer yeah. but it's not uncommon for them to do so for me i think one of the the big questions for them is what it's like for someone to volunteer because if they're trained since they were young that almost certainly means since they were before 10 what does someone who since they were in elementary school age, told 
that their purpose is to compete in this deadly event? How do they perceive their own value, their own purpose, their own life? And how do they perceive it before the games begin? And then once they're in the games, and how does that affect them? Or is it coming from that as directly? Or could it be coming from, oh, look it, we had this victor. Mm-hmm. And they are bringing us gifts. They are bringing us all of these extra things. I want to be able to do that for my district. Well, not to mention that. but I mean, this looks like military propaganda, right? Totally, yeah. And those victors themselves probably are a part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the mentors are probably going in and helping in this training, helping in, yeah. in all this activity. And so going in and not only having someone who has, yeah, brought wealth or status or, or whatever it might be to your community, but who might be actively grooming you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reason why grooming is such an issue is because it is effective mm-hmm. because young people in particular are susceptible to certain techniques and, and manipulations. There's a power dynamic at play when you have someone older, more experienced, more strong, intelligent, wealthy, you know, all of these exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. And we know that they are trained since they're young. So we know that power dynamic exists mm-hmm. because there's someone who is there, who is an adult, who is a part of this process. And if that's the case, then no matter what, Sure, maybe they believe that they made that choice to be a volunteer, but they made that choice within circumstances that are manipulative, that are lacking of what we consider consent in our society or what we should consider consent in our society. It's just, they're they're still children is Mm -hmm. a thing. And when I think about the kind of things that I would do when I was that age, I would make some very bad decisions. And yeah, it just makes me empathize with these children who are clearly making bad decisions as well. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. I, I wasn't actually thinking about it in that direction. What direction were you thinking about it in? I Northeast? Was... <laughs> you know it. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually kind of wondering if the practice of volunteering is in some ways a subversive act. Hmm. Because then these kids aren't being dragged away against their will. They're volunteering for their potential deaths because among the six tributes from the career districts, only one of them, if one of them, can survive. Yeah. And they're doing this so that people in their community have enough to eat. Mm -hmm. And so is not going against your will, but going because you volunteer for it, because you say, I am ready to face death if I need to. Is that subversive in a way? Obviously, it's problematic. You should only do it like every few years so that Mm -hmm. other (laughs) districts get some of the extra gifts and stuff. But I was just thinking about, could it be seen that way? Because the capital loses a bit of power mm-hmm. if people are volunteering for this. Yeah. there There is an element of agency, for sure, mm-hmm. that we have to recognize. They are making a difficult decision. And sure, they're being influenced, but they are making that decision. And to make that decision is taking on a very large responsibility 
frankly, this is just reminding me of Final Fantasy X, in which one of the main characters you find out throughout the story is on a sacrificial journey. And what that means for them to live in a society where they believe they need to sacrifice themselves for the good of others. And what that journey can look like is, is I think, really well done in that game and in that story. Yeah, I, I, I was so appreciative and admiring of that journey for that character that now that you bring that up, I have to be the same for these volunteers hmm. because they're doing a, a very similar thing. Well, I mean, an 18-year-old volunteering instead of a 13-year-old being exactly forced into the games. Yeah, yeah. If so many people are volunteering, it's making it so that all of the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds don't have the same anxiety that they have in other districts. Mm-hmm some degree yeah wow but 180 degrees the other direction southwest (laughs) yeah the winds are coming in (laughs) (laughs) i was thinking about district two if we should differentiate them from the other two districts because they are the military district they are the ones who are providing peacekeepers they are the ones who are providing weaponry that continue to oppress the districts. That district is upholding the capital, I think, in a way that's slightly different than the other districts. Totally. They're supplying the capital with the very things that are maintaining their own oppression, Mm -hmm. as well as the oppression of all of these other people. And it was just kind of (laughs) allegorically making me think of impoverished white Americans who can often turn their anger and violence towards people of color, towards immigrants, etc. And see them as the problem, them as the enemy, rather than the 1% that is actually in many ways responsible for the injustice of capitalism. Absolutely. Yet they're voting for them and in so doing, supplying the people who are making their lives more difficult with the power to continue to do so. Yeah. kind of think district two is doing to some degree yeah you're absolutely right district poo is more like it (laughs) oh dear that was just so excellent chris (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) so yeah those were my thoughts well thank you for sharing those very very profound and enlightening thoughts i love being called profound and enlightening (laughs) thank you for Telling the truth, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Yeah. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So next week, we are actually going to take a break for one week. Our patrons are going to get a special episode that is us talking about the first Hunger Games movie and deciding what is a rad adaptation versus a bad adaptation. It's a very fun episode. If, <laughs> if you're not a supporter yet, if you're not on our Patreon, this is the time to join because <laughs> this is definitely one of the funnest episodes that we're, we're providing for them. And you can join for just $1 a month. And then after that, we are back hitting the ground running, starting Catching Fire. And we are going to be reading chapters one and two for that first discussion two weeks from now. You can find links to our social media, our website, and the Patreon in the episode description. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, peace.
geek out. out.